Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. This week, JF and I are doing something we did all the way back in episodes 27 and 28. Each of us chose a song to serve as a topic of conversation. Actually, we each chose two songs and hoped that we could talk about them all in a single session. Well, JF hoped we could. I know myself well enough to understand that there was never the slightest chance of me being brief on the subject of music, which, after all, is kind of my thing. Indeed, I did talk way too much, and as a result, we only got through two songs in this episode, Lilac Wine, a jazz standard composed by James Shelton and, in the version we are discussing, sung by Nina Simone, and Underwater, a track by the rapper Ghostface Killer from his 2006 album Fish Scale. For all my excessive talkativeness in this episode, I think it's a good one, and it exemplifies what it is that JF and I like to do on this show. Each of us comes to any given topic with a different perspective and a different toolkit of approaches. When we're talking about songs, JF tends to begin by focusing on the lyrics, while my natural tendency is to drill down into the music. But as we get talking, we form like Voltron, as Method Man might say, and start to spark off of one another's contributions, and this leads us to places we would never have imagined we'd end up. After beginning with a general discussion of Ghostface Killa's characteristic flow and lyrical imagery, we follow a circuitous path through dreams and visions, rifts, mid-century exotica pop, and arrive finally at what Norman Mailer called the dream life the vast and borderless imaginal territory that artists cross and recross, making connections between, for example, early 20th century French Impressionist classical music and a Muslim's vision of paradise. Likewise, after starting off with J.F.'s theory that lilac wine is about a necromantic operation to bring back a dead lover, we zigzag our way to an understanding of the late 19th century decadent movement that resonates with the stuff we talked about in our trash stratum shows. Here, we suggest that the decadent artist is the one who dives headlong into the gutter and somehow comes out clean. We revisit some old friends in this episode— the decadents, of course, and also poor old Gustav von Aschenbach, the protagonist of Thomas Mann's novella Death in Venice, which we discussed in episode 77 on The Fool Card of the Tarot. Speaking of Aschenbach, I've recently released a solo music history podcast on Benjamin Britten's operatic adaptation of Death in Venice. That was on our Patreon, which you can visit at patreon.com forward slash weird studies. We've got a lot of great stuff there, Patreon has allowed JF and me to go deeper into our peculiar interests, both together and separately. Together, we do bonus podcasts every other week that are often a good deal more unbuttoned than the flagship shows. Separately, we write essays for our patrons. Just this last week, for instance, JF wrote an essay titled Behold, I Make All Things New, which discusses the Japanese art of making gyokuro tea in order to consider the absolute newness at the core of every seemingly insignificant event. 
And on Patreon and the new fan-run subreddit, r slash weird studies, I hit up our readers for questions about classical music and then wrote a Patreon column that started off with recommendations and ended up spiraling off into stuff about time-binding and Beethoven's reputation as a badass. Our fans are kind enough to say that they like this sort of thing, and if it sounds like the sort of thing you'd like too, we would love for you to subscribe. Okay, thanks for listening. On with the show. This is a repeat of our, I don't remember which episode it was, but we did one episode, two episodes about music so far, exclusively devoted to music where we each picked a couple of songs and, and uh, or pieces of music and then discussed them. So our challenge today is to do all four of our songs in 90 minutes. Do you think we'll be able to do that? No, but it's a nice thought. We can do it. No, we can't. <laughs> I don't believe in you. I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't. So, uh, well, this might be a two-parter. I have a request. Sure. I would like us to start with Nina Simone's performance of Lilac Wine. Sure. Which was your idea. You wanted to do the song. Sure. So shall I do my little presentation about why I want to do this song? Show and tell with JF. Well, Lilac Wine is a song that I... First heard Jeff Buckley doing it. He does a version of it, or he did a version of it, which really looks like a cover of Nina Simone's version, I think. And then I discovered Nina Simone later on, and then I discovered that she sang this beautiful song. Nina Simone for me is like she's called the high priestess of soul, I've heard. She really is a high priestess. I mean, she's like, she, she, she did all kinds of covers. But one of the things she did with her covers, which is she would change a lyric or add something that would reframe the song in some new context and give it this ridiculous charge of significance and meaning. And she does this with Lilac Wine, a song written by James Shelton in 1950 from a musical called Dance Me a Song, a largely forgotten musical. And this song is one of the few things to have um, emerged from this otherwise, I guess, forgotten chapter of musical history. So it's a song about a woman who's lost her lover. He has died, presumably. And she finds herself on a cool, damp night, kind of lost in the wilderness. And she comes upon this lilac tree. And she makes wine from the lilac tree and puts her heart in its recipe. The lyrics are just so weird and haunting. And this wine, this lilac wine, allows her to essentially, if if you're going to look at it literally, to perform a kind of necromantic operation by which her lover will return to her, will appear before her. And uh, that's what I love about the song. It's a song that, you know, if you read the Wikipedia interpretation of the song, it says, uh, the lyrics form a narrative of heartache at losing a lover and taking solace from wine made from a lilac tree. The song focuses on the blissful oblivion achieved by becoming intoxicated. Oh, that's, yeah, I guess that's one interpretation. But under Nina Simone's um, 
care, the song takes on a kind of like a sorceress kind of aura. And I get the feeling listening to it that I'm listening to a, a necromancer, someone who's brewed not a wine so much as a potion that involves lilacs. First of all, I don't think lilac wine even exists, but uh, a combination. It reminded of, me of bug powder and naked lunch. Right. It's like a this, drug that doesn't exist. A drug that doesn't exist. Exactly. And lilacs being, I guess, a, a symbol of spring and renewal and rebirth. And she takes that flower, she combines it with her heart, her blood, who knows, and then creates this potion that allows her to enter the realm of the dead. And the song tells us about the dangers of necromancy, but also the promise of necromancy. There's a moment in the song where you can tell she's becoming afraid, she's confused, she's, the, the wine is affecting her cognitive function. And she's not sure if she's seeing her lover come out of the shadows or if she's just imagining it. There's this crazy moment of of really sad kind of like, uh, I don't know, the song is, it's just such a, such an honest and vulnerable tune. And you just feel this person who's tried to perform this operation coming up against the real significance of that necromantic operation and then kind of like hesitating. And of course, in the original version, the song ends with the line, I feel unready for my love. Basically the intimation there would be that Having tried to get all intoxicated on lilac wine and seeing ghosts, one realizes eventually that it's not time yet to, to meet your lover again. You'll have to just give up the lilac wine and go on with your life. But Nina Simone changes the last line to, I feel I'm ready for my love, hmm. which to me drives home the real point of necromancy, which you mentioned on a previous episode, that the point of necromancy is to become acquainted and comfortable with death in order to transcend its authority, to kind of incorporate yeah. death into oneself. And the way Nina sings it, at the end, you have the, the sense that in this very decadent way, she has descended into the depths in order to reach new heights, in order to become comfortable and to transcend the fear and the doubt that accompanies um, an awareness of mortality and death and Transients. To, to be ready for her love would mean to be ready for death. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, the weird ambivalence of the word love in the song is interesting because mm. I think you could you can interpret the lyric to mean to make a kind of really clear parallel between love and death, which has an, a lot of archetypal baggage, that sort of correspondence. But there's definitely a kind of flirtation with death going on in this song, which is why I think it's a a deeply decadent song in the in the most positive sense of that word. Yeah, and it's weird. You know, it's just all around a weird tune. So that's why I wanted to do this one. Nice. You know, I don't know if the original plot of the musical from which this was taken involves mourning a dead lover. Uh, right. Because I didn't do my homework. But I don't think you even have to... I think you could hold on to that interpretation or interpretation very like it. And make it much more mundane, make it much more everyday. Like, okay, let's uh, say instead of being removed from a lover by death, maybe it's, uh, I don't know. We were talking about Aschenbach recently. Uh, maybe it's a, an impossible love. It's a, an unachievable right. love. Maybe it's somebody that you love who you have no opportunity of ever being with. 
you know, what do you have of that person? Uh, thinking about Aschenbach, Tatsuya never talks to him, never introduces himself to him. All he has of Tatsuya is memories of him on the beach. Right. From that point of view, then what would the necromantic operation be? It would be conjuring that person into memory through the association with some object. Perhaps you get high on a drug that allows you to imagine things with hallucinatory vividness, right? If I'm being literal about this. But I could also think about something like in Blue Velvet, you know, with one of the most amazing rifts in that very rifty film is when we see Frank Booth, a evil, terrifying gangster played by Dennis Hopper, listening to Dorothy Vallon singing and he's like fondling this piece of blue velvet. It's like this fetish that he has and it's never explained what it is to him. There's a musical fetish in that film too, which is the Roy Orbison song In Dreams, which we see him listening to and we see him undergoing this emotional transformation, but the transformation is never explained. We never understand what that song means to him, but it transforms him and uh, it, it possesses him. And, you know, from this point of view, Lilac Wine could be the song itself. It could be the song Lilac Wine, a musical fetish object. Uh, what, what, what do you do when you're missing somebody? Say you've been dumped or, you know, Aschenbach, like you're trying to make somebody's absence present to you, if you see what I mean, to conjure them up, to, to make them close to you when you can't be close to them. You listen to a song a song you associate with that person, and all you have of that person is the song, and so you listen to it again and again. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Are you suggesting that there's a, a kind of link between Lilac Wines particularly and the character in the song she's trying to see again? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the in the sense that a fetish participates in the essence of the thing being fetishized. Like, right. Like, you know, Frank Booth's piece of blue velvet that is a material token of something that isn't there that we don't see and we don't understand. Yeah, well, I certainly get that sense because if it had been rose wine or um, lotus wine, then of course the connotations would have been clearer, at least that right. it, certain connotations would suggest themselves automatically. Lilac, I've looked through dictionaries of symbols and stuff to know, I mean, there's some light interpretation of lilacs representing something like rebirth, the spring, but it's not one of those like alchemical flowers, you know, that you'll just see come up again and again when you read about the esoteric. Right. It's, it's kind of random. So in that sense, it suggests itself as a kind of floating signifier. It could mean many yeah. different things, lilac wine. It has no, it comes with no historical baggage. It's a lot like the bug powder in Naked in the film Naked Lunch, yeah. uh, which is, like you said, a drug that doesn't exist. But the drug that doesn't exist tells us something about all drugs, obviously, but also tells right. us something about the power of matter, of things, of objects to trap us, to just suck us into time, into the past or into weird futures. Like just this image of this lilac wine, as ill-equipped as we are to interpret what it means, we cannot but kind of approach it as symbolic of something. And that something becomes the kind of reservoir of all the meaning in this song of like loss. Like I was, I just assumed that she was talking about a dead lover um, because, but I'm realizing now that there's no indication in the song that it's about that at all. It could be some dude who dumped her and she's like, it brings right. me back you. 
But uh, to me, that's what Lilac Wine told me. It told me about death. It told me about love and death. And there's a sadness in that because like whether you're performing a necromatic operation to present the shade of the dead before yeah. you, or you're listening to a song, a sad song that allows you to feel closer to the person that you're missing or whatever, the lilac wine that allows you to think more than you want to think and do things that you never should do. Um, it will always end. The necromatic ceremony will end. You'll sober up. The song will end. The needle will bump to the out spiral groove on the record. And then you're left just with you, with a hangover, yeah. or with the sound of the, the needle spinning idly in the void. Or the wind and, and the lilacs. Yeah, and... At the end, when it's like, lilac wine is sweet and heady. Where's my love? Lilac wine, I feel unsteady. Where's my love? Is that she or am I going crazy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going crazy. And it's, among other things, a kind of an interesting parable for drugs. Yeah, drugs make you feel great for a time. But you always come down. And now what, asshole? And that now what... That bleary, hungover moment of like, oh yeah, for a second there, I could almost convince myself that she was there. But now I'm just sitting here and I'm alone and I'm hungover and the absence becomes doubly painful. That particular moment, this song just rings every bitter drop from that moment. Wow. Uh, that's the thing. I think that if you read the last line, the way Nina Simone sung it, I'm ready, then to me, the experience of intoxication and madness is a preparation for a real reunion with the love she lost or she, that she yearns for. So that's why that line, if it, it, it matters mm, whether it ends mm. with, I feel unready for my love. That's the ultimate, like, I'm back, I'm sober again, and I'm, I'm just not able to make this connection. Yeah, okay. But then cope. if you say I feel I'm ready, I'm ready for my love, the way she sings it, to me it's like it's a redeeming, a redemption of yeah. the the decadent, the intoxication, the sin, the, the groveling in in the shit. It redeems it because it shows how like going down can eventually lead you back up, can somehow equip you to face. It's a non-judgmental song. And yeah. um yeah. And I, I like that about it. I like, I like its ambiguity anyways. I love it. I love it. I love the way it mines the idea of intoxication yeah. as a figure for loss and loneliness. Yes. It's an amazing song. Okay, so I propose to share the song with you over Zoom. We can listen to it together. And my idea is that I would talk through the things that are happening in the lyrics, which we've talked about, as it's being played out in a pretty unusual song form. Yeah. And I'm not going to get deep into the form, but I just want to point out some changes that happen that are really interesting and that might add an, a dimension to the interpretation of the lyrics that we've gotten into so far. Sure. Can you dig it? Yep. Okay. I lost myself on a cool, damp 
night Gave myself in that misty light Was hypnotized by strange It's such a stern sounding beginning of a pop song hitting a like in this case F sharp minor chord and what's interesting about this particular bit of the song is how it's like recitative or free time like a soliloquy just a few strummed chords and just a free line spun out over top of it And, okay, here we change the harmony, and it opens up a little bit. But it's still that same pattern of rhapsodic vocal lines spun out over somber chords in a minor key. And where I just stopped it is the ending of that opening kind of free time section, which, as I say, is all in a minor key. Yeah. And right here is where there is the shift from that minor to the major, parallel major. So the key that Nina Simone was singing it in is F sharp minor. So suddenly it shifts to F sharp major. unusual actually in American popular songs where you might have like a verse chorus structure where the verse is minor and the chorus which is usually the only part anybody sings of old Tin Pan Alley songs uh, the chorus is major that that's not so unusual but here the songwriter is really mining it to create like a special mood and I wonder do you have anything to say or anything you think about like the shift in musical mode, like how that corresponds with what's going on in the lyric? Well, I think that's when the intoxication begins, when the the lilac wine kicks in and we suddenly, at first we're outside, she's telling us about where she made this wine. We're outside of her watching her. We're seeing her in this dark place. The minor key suggests melancholy or darkness. And then, of course, when it opens up in the major, then... You know, she's revealed to us that she drinks this wine in order to commune with her lost love. And then the key changes. It goes to the major and this beautiful descending chord progression, which to me is one of the simplest ways of generating hard, hard emotion. For me, it's just like a descending chord progression. It just feels like the autumn or something. And you're just riding on this hazy cloud of of sound for the rest of the song. And it, well, I mean, there, there are breaks in there, but it keeps coming back to this kind of like melancholy drifting, um, almost kind of weightless chord progression that the song rests on. It's really, really evocative for me. It's a gorgeous chord progression. I'm going to jump to the piano. And I love what you said, the drifting chord progression. It's similar to, not quite the same as, but similar to a kind of chord progression that you get in a minor key song, which has a descending bass line, but it's major. It's sort of, if, if for um, 
music nerds, what is sometimes called a chacon bassline, a descending minor tetrachord. There, I just used some music technical language, which I am not going to explain, but hearing it repackaged in the major right. gives it this feeling of bottomless melancholy, yeah. and yet it's in the major. It's like a wonderful sort of double exposure. It's just like, okay, again, imagine somebody alone in their apartment and they're trying to conjure the presence of the person they can't have or can't be with them, a dead lover or, a, or an absent lover, somebody who dumped you or whatever. And the warmth and happiness, the joy that you get from that person's presence but mingled in there somewhere is the awareness that this isn't real, that this is yeah. just some necromantic operation, that this is just some intoxication, that this is a fetish, that this is a substitute. It's a song that evokes melancholy, but it, that it also it's a song that revels in melancholy. It sits back in melancholy as though in a comfortable chair. Yeah. And that's what I love about this song. That's why I said it was decadent. It really resonates with what I love about the British decadent literature and French decadent literature of the second half of the 19th century. This song to me really belongs in that ethos. To me, decadence is about reveling in the dark, reveling in what is sad, what is dark, what is uh, hopeless, etc., but not reveling in order to just revel in it, reveling in order to recognize its reality so that its opposite can be affirmed. To me, that's what decadence is about. I don't think no, anybody said that. I'll have to write it somehow at some point. That's a beautiful, to me, beautiful that's, idea. That's what decadence is about. And this song to me is, a, is an elixir. I mean, it's this type of song you want to listen to when you're grieving because it validates your grieving. It doesn't try to change it. It allows it to be what it is, and it shows how your your grief can be a path to something else, right? Damn right. Yeah. Oh. Very therapeutic song. Now, what about the melody here? You know, this is, to me, one of the most unusual things. It's not just the alternation of free, rhapsodic, or recitative-like passages. Um, we've already talked about how the beginning is like that, but it ends that way, too. After this section, mm -hmm. we go back into that almost unmeasured time. Listen to me, I cannot see clearly, isn't that he coming to me? Nearly. You know, and we're talking about intoxication. Um, this is a perfect representation of like, this is where you get high. This is where you get drunk. Yeah. And then that free bit at the end where the the free time, the recitative style comes back, it's, it's just sort of like sobering up. You're back in the reality principle again. Yeah. Lilac wine is sweet and heady Where's my love? Then what do we make of the melody here? I love this melody. And I was thinking, man, this melody sounds like a hymn yeah. or like a national anthem or something. It does. You're right. Lilac wine is sweet and heady yeah. like my love. The way it goes up to the fifth scale yeah. degree there, that, that proud 
upward lifting motion. Almost kind of pathetic too, because it's in this context, this kind of plaintive context. So it sounds almost desperate or it's trying yeah. to convince itself. Again, like you were saying that it's real when it knows deep down it's not. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, proud. Yes. Reveling. And, yeah. And I want to get to something you said about decadence. It reminds me of something that I like to say about decadence when I teach Richard Strauss's Salome, which is one of the great decadent artworks. It's the operatic setting of Oscar Wilde's Salome. Yeah. There's a final kind of almost a blasphemous parody of Wagner's Liebestod, the love death at the end of Tristan and Isolde. But in this case, it is Salome singing a love song to a severed human head, the severed head of John the Baptist. And it's creepy as fuck. The scene is grotesque and gruesome, but the music tells us that to Salome, this is beautiful. And we see the glory of this moment, the moment she kisses a severed human head. We see it the way Salome experiences it. That's what makes it so unsettling and decadent and wrong. And I'd like to tell the students, that if we were to summarize the emotion of that scene, it would be, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. Yeah. And getting back to this song, that little uh, leap up to the fifth scale degree, like my love, that pride. It's just like, yes, I'm drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know she's not really here. Yes, I know this is stupid. Yes, I know this is futile. Yes, I know this is bad for me. This is hurting me. But fuck it. Yeah. If this is wrong, I don't want to be right. Or as Salome says at the end of the opera, they say love hath a bitter taste. But what of it? I have kissed thy mouth. <laughs> Nothing. Ghostface Killer underwater. made you pick this song? Bunch of things. First off, I mean, I don't know how much Wu-Tang you listen to. Ghostface is, 
maybe my favorite rapper from the Wu-Tang Clan, although this is not a Wu-Tang album. This is a solo album called Fish Scale that came out in uh, 2006. Yeah. yeah. And it's very gritty, hard banging. Like one of the things I love about Ghostface is he's an incredible storyteller. And yeah. right from the beginning in this album, there's a track called Shaky Dog, which tells a story of a drug deal gone wrong, like somebody trying to rip off his dealer and everything goes wrong. And it's just a gripping, terrifying story. Like you're, it just grabs you and holds you as things go from bad to worse. And Ghostface has this kind of style, this delivery flow, as they say, where it's just like this kind of explosive delivery. You ever seen that series, Luke Cage? I think it's on Netflix or no. was on Netflix. So Luke Cage is a superhero guy who has like bulletproof skin, like you can't hurt him. Um, and he's a normal guy with kind of superhuman strength, but he's just a guy and he's trying to, I don't know, make things right in, in the world. Anyway, there's a moment where he raids a building where dirty dealings are going down and he just kicks down the door and all these guys are shooting him, but it doesn't make any difference. And he's just kicking everybody's ass and he's on a mission. And they use the very first verse from the first track from Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, the, their, their debut album, which is Ghostface. And you figure, of course they put Ghostface first on that track because it's the lyrical equivalent to somebody kicking down a door and coming out blazing. Ghostface, catch the blast of a hype verse. My clock burst, leaving a hearse. I did worse. I come rough, jump like an elephant tusk. Your head rush, fly like Egyptian musk. Oh shit, we take clear spark the wixen. However, I mastered a trick just like Nixon. Causing terror, quick damage your whole era. Hard rocks is locked the fuck up. I found shot, yellow style. Just like his explosive delivery and just like fucking incredibly vivid uh, storytelling, the way he just makes things vivid to your mind. Imagery, um, yeah. Strong. It just goes boom. It's just like his, that's his thing. And another thing he does is also you find in all of his stuff is unconventional imagery and wordplay. He will sometimes just throw lines in because they sound cool and not because they really make sense which I love. He's a very intuitive kind of rapper. He doesn't care if it doesn't always make sense. Anyway, so I love Ghostface anyhow, but what's interesting is in an album, which is one hard-boiled crime story after another, there's this, which is this kind of impossible, perhaps dream journey or a, some kind of metaphysical journey. Perhaps this is like Pilgrim's Progress, some kind of uh, allegorical tale. Uh, perhaps as the annotators on Genius.com seem to think, as somebody who's been killed and is being ushered into the Muslim afterlife, and that's what it's about. Well, however you want to interpret it, I'm not going to negate any of those interpretations. I'm also not going to endorse any of them. I'm just going to say, however you interpret it, it's this kind of like imaginative dive, literally, into a kind of fantastical colorful world underwater and i love not just ghostface the way he raps but also the beat which is by another of my favorite rappers mf doom it's a beat from one of his special herbs albums called orange blossom and 
the beat has some really interesting things going on that connect this track to a lot of especially mid-century American kind of exotica representations of the otherworldly, the paradisic, the exotic, the strange. And so to keep my weird studies cred here, you know, it's not like fucking Lovecraftian or whatever, but it is in hip hop, a kind of fantastical voyage. And the music setting is perfect, just perfect for that kind of imagery. So that's why I wanted to do this song. And we can get into more details about like what's going on in the lyrics and what's going on in that beat or whatever. But I just wanted to throw that out. Yeah. There's a, it has a strange affinity to the next song we'll do, Pyramid Song, which is also about falling underwater and seeing a bunch of shit down there. Um, true. So just looking at it lyrically, because that's how I approach these things. I mean, it's working from an archetype here of a descent, right? Underwater means below, like underneath the yeah. the world we know. That's right. And then it is, it does read like a kind of weird vision quest where, you know, it starts, it starts off with, uh, I'm lost underwater. I see a pink door with a crystal handle. So already here, we're in the realm of myth, fairy tale, vision. Of course, I'm really curious to know if there's anything in Islamic uh, lore uh, about a pink door with a crystal handle. But it, it doesn't matter. We're already in this kind or of like... Or SpongeBob in a Bentley coupe. Right. <laughs> exactly. jellyfish, sharks, pearls on the mermaid girls. Gucci belts that they rock for no reason from a different world. Up ahead lies Noah's Ark, but that's waves away. You the right. That's one of our banging spots. She quoted, I took notice. SpongeBob in the Bentley coupe. Banging the eyes like he spoke back up. Then he passed me soon. I'm pretty sure that's not in the Quran. But I have to say, I am at a disadvantage with my ignorance of the Islamic tradition. I don't know what yeah, aspects because, of these. Well, I mean, we should mention that uh, Ghostface Killer converted to Islam in, uh, before he, he recorded this album. So yeah. this yeah, is yeah. a song sung by a, a Muslim. Um, and I mean, the form of it is uh, a descent into the underworld, a kind of like being lured deeper and deeper into this realm of shadows and strangeness and, and weirdness, and then eventually emerging from it when he finds the city that I guess, represents the Islamic paradise that he moves towards at the <laughs> end. And so a kind of uh, Dante's peregrination kind of uh, form to mm. it, which is really interesting to find in the hip-hop song. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's kind of cool about it is that for however, perhaps religious, its inspiration or otherworldly and fantastical, its imagery, he also is constantly mixing in things from the commercial logoscape of our world. So like, you know, mermaids with Halle Berry haircuts. Um, SpongeBob in the Bentley Coop. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And also historical things. Yeah, the rock from the Titanic. Um, he talks about a ship that's been all shot up with its yeah. anchor out. Uh, he's moving through space and through a kind of inner space, but also there are fragments of the past there. Like whether it's the historical tokens, like uh, the Titanic or Halle Berry, who was a real person, or the kind of pop culture references 
or the mythical or mythological references like Noah's Ark, he's in this place where all these things exist on a level. He's in this pure imaginal space. It's very dreamlike because you're, you know, you may well dream of a, a pink door with a crystal handle that opens up onto a spiral staircase descending into the depths of the earth. And what do you find at the bottom? You find fucking SpongeBob. Like that's how dreams work, right? They, they, they're not, they're not uh, precious about what they'll use, what they'll throw at you. And there's no escape from the archetype. So the gods are as present in the tritest piece of pop culture as it is in the most ancient and exalted mythological motif. It's everywhere. And he's he's giving us a sense of that weird dreamlike mood that characterizes not just our, our night dreams, but uh, life when we choose to look at it as a dream. You know, life itself can have that feeling sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it a very cool a metaphysical song. <laughs> You know, one of the things I like about Ghostface is just that quite apart from like the overall shape of a verse or a particular rhyme, like even just little lyrical fragments, like where he says, I'm not on my turf. Mm-hmm. Actually, what he says, I see a pink door with a crystal handle. So I keep swimming. Amazed I'm not drowning. Butterflies took control when I arrived. I opened the door. No, I knocked first. I'm not on my turf. That's the context for it. I love that. I'm not on my turf. It's a little bit of that kind of street smart sort of line, like I could imagine him saying, I'm not on my turf in Shaky Dog, for example, like somebody being paranoid, head on a swivel, aware of being in a dangerous enemy territory. But here that line appears in this different context where it totally works. Like, yeah, I opened the door. No, no, I knocked first. I'm not on my turf. And also the way that he's sort of walking through an experience, amazed I'm not drowning. It's just like, it's like dreams that you have or visionary experiences. If you've ever had a visionary experience, you, the listener at home, um, where you're taken somewhere. And yet at the same time, the whole time, you're also kind of choosing things or like- Participating in uh, it, yeah. You're participating yeah. in it. Yeah, there's a, there's a Jungian practice called the active imagination, which is all about that. It's like, imagine- something. Imagine a story. Imagine yourself walking through the woods, let's say, and then you're half encountering things and half generating them. It's all okay for you you, because what you'll choose to imagine will tell you a lot about you, you know, just as it will tell you just as much about your psyche as what you dream without intending to. So there's a cool kind of participatory, uh, like he's living it as he's writing it kind of feeling. Um, yeah, which is probably how the, you know we know who knows how the song was written, but you can imagine that song just kind of like pouring out of him and him trying to interpret the images as he as they as they come to him, right? Yeah, and you know when you think about it, it's like how many songs do you know that give a realistic account or realistic representation of a visionary quest? I can't think of too many. No, I would argue Pyramid Song does it too in different ways, but actually, yeah. yes, that's a good point. But like, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Um, it has this Dada kind of devil may care kind of attitude. Like it's just throwing yeah. things at you, but somehow they all yep. fall into place and all contribute to this overall yeah. vision, which is really interesting. 
Yeah. And it's cumulative too, because like, you know, there are moments of whimsy, like SpongeBob and the Bentley Coop or whatever. But then when we arrive at the end in the, the world's banginest mosque, yeah. <laughs> I love that line. Uh, he writes at the world's banginest mosque and it's just this image of paradise, this vision of beauty. And it's so intense. Um, and the intensity of his diction, the intensity of his flow, you know, his characteristic signature flow detonates there. It becomes so powerful that it's like, oh, it's gathering up all these weird, loose images, all these loose ends and threads of a visionary quest. And then it, you know, he drives it home. There's a real end weighted feeling of a destination reached. And then the moment that he achieves that completion, it's over. Boom. And we hear a few last bubbles. Yeah, right. And it's yeah. done. And the vision pops. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, the shape of it. Okay, so I'm going to switch topics a little bit. And this is a little bit of a J.F. Martell, this is your life thing. I'm going to read from your book, Reclaiming Art. Okay. So this is about rifts. We've talked a lot about rifts lately. And I've actually read this passage to my Wagner ring cycle class that I taught this summer. So we spent a lot of time thinking about all of the many rifts that you can find in Wagner's ring cycle. Um, this is the passage that I read. All classics being unique, it would be impossible to list off their common characteristics. In fact, there may be only one such thing, the rift, which breaks the consensus trance and opens the work onto the chaosmus of the real. The presence of rifts in classic works of art, I think, is what distinguishes them from the rest. For a symbol to disclose itself in full, you need the classic, and for the classic, you need the rift. When the Paris Review asked Hemingway to explain his idiosyncratic style, he answered that, quote, what amateurs call a style is usually only the unavoidable awkwardness in first trying to make something that has not heretofore been made. End quote. It is to these awkwardnesses that I am referring when I talk about rifts. They are fissures or caesuras in the body of a work. They can take the form of imperfections, surreal excesses, strange turns of phrase, inconsistencies, stylistic flourishes, and narrative coincidences, all kinds of things in which a master craftsman, a maker of masterworks, would see errors to correct. And then you go on to give as an example the continuity error, where... You say that for all continuity errors are things that assholes on the internet like to make fun of, and a lot of directors drive themselves crazy trying to get rid of them. You ask, could it be that on some level they realize, that is to say, those directors who seem to revel in continuity errors, could it be that on some level they realize that cinema is more akin to dreaming than to real life, and that what matters when making a film is not verisimilitude, but symbolic power? And the idea is, you know, that these continuity errors, these odd intrusions into the smooth surface of a well-crafted film are themselves portals to deeper symbolic meanings and resonances. Yeah. I, uh, I wanted to bring that up because one of the things that I love about hip hop, particularly the instrumental side of it, the beat making side of it, is that at least in the hands of the artists who I really love, like MF Doom, hip hop can become an art of rifts. Oh, yeah. And I'm talking in a specific technical way about the way beats are put together, that you'll create a rhythm track, you know, a little of the old boom bap, some kind of hip hop beat. You might create it yourself or you might lift it from a recording. But then there are going to be other recorded elements that you might cycle into, you know, this is talking about sample based hip hop. There's some hip hop that isn't sample based, but 
this backing track is called Orange Blossoms. It's by MF Doom. And what he's done is that he has this, uh, you know, this hip hop rhythmic groove, but the sample that we hear over and over again in Orange Blossoms and therefore also in Underwater is taken from a track by a guy named Paul Horn, a jazz musician who, by the way, ended up living in Canada. He was born in the United States. Originally played in the Chico Hamilton Quintet. If you've ever seen the great movie, The Sweet Smell of Success, you can see Paul Horn briefly looking dapper as fuck playing the flute. Uh, And he's like a kind of progressive jazz flute guy, right? And then he had spiritual experiences in the 60s and he became something more like what we would call a new age musician. One of his more new age albums, it's an album called Visions, and on it is a track called High Tide. I'm going to share this with you so you can listen to a little bit. And I want to point out the moment, and you'll probably just hear it, the moment that we get to the sample, the MF Doom loops over and over again along with that rhythmic bed. You know, there's a there's a documentary that I recommend to anybody who can get a hold of it called Scratch, which is about DJ turntablism, guys who are, you know, live mixing and remixing records to create a rhythm bed or a beat for rappers to rhyme over. And sometimes there's not even a rapper. Sometimes it's just instrumental music, right? One thing that becomes clear when you watch that documentary is how much time hip hop producers and DJs go what they call crate digging where they're spending time going through old dusty records at Amoeba Records on Hate Street or whatever, looking for albums that nobody sampled yet, but that have within them little moments that you can turn into a beat. I think you see Z Trip, like with his little toy turntable that he brings with him everywhere, like playing records and just trying to find those little moments. And you heard the track, like at the first, it sounds nice. It sounds like a Donald Byrd record from the 70s. It's all smooth and funky. Good music to listen to on a cookout, bottle of beer in your hand. But then just for a moment, it gets a little weird there. You hear the wordless feminine chorus in the background, the ooze in the background, and this cool little harmonic shift that I'm not going to try and break down, but it's cool. And You know, MF Doom, I like to imagine him sitting there in his studio with his mask on, of course, probably blunted, and he's going through records and he finds this little moment, this moment where an otherwise nice, but, you know, kind of anodyne, possibly forgettable track, suddenly there's a rift, a little moment breaks open. He's like, yeah, that, I'm going to take that, I'm going to sample that, and that's going to be the basis of this incredible track. And then that track becomes the basis for Underwater. When I say that hip-hop can be an art form of riffs, well, I mean, I guess all art forms are art forms of riffs if they're real art. But at the same time, I love how the search for rifts is baked into the practices of sample-based hip-hop. Yeah, that's a really good point, because you're finding these moments that somehow stick out. 
right? Yeah. They stand out of their original setting and they're like, oh, they're, you're seeing this new potential. It's a little bit like we're talking a little bit with lilac wine, you yeah. know, like the, it's like a metaphor that doesn't quite work. And so you take it out and this whole other world opens from it. It opens onto these depths that would have been unfathomed had the surface of the original work been too smooth, right? You need these little contradictions, these little moments of friction or whatever you would call them, fissures or caesura that open up your, your, they, they invite you into the medium. They invite you to participate. And somehow you're seeing something that's more than what's in the, the, uh, the original setting. You're seeing something else behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I guess that those make great samples, those moments. Yeah. Uh, the question is whatever it was that was in the original piece that MF Doom heard, is that thing present in the mix he made with it? Does he preserve the weirdness? I think he does. I think that yeah. in extracting the rift, you're actually extracting something that's actually in the piece. Like you're, that you're revealing something about the original piece such that yeah. if you were listening, like I just heard that, that original source material for the first time just now, but I think I'm hearing it better than I would have had had yeah. I not heard that sample first. I'm hearing something in it that I wouldn't have noticed before, even though it's there. You know, I find this happens all the time when I listen to a hip hop track and I hear a sample and then I hear the song that the sample came from. I feel like hearing the sample first, hearing the song that's based on the sample first allows me to hear the song truly. Yeah. More truly at any rate. That's a very counterintuitive. Well, it's very intuitive, but uh, uh, I guess potentially controversial it's just, back, it's just backwards it's the type of thing causality. that makes it's the type of thing that makes certain listeners of weird studies angry at us and write us angry emails sometimes but they're always very polite angry emails but um <laughs> but i think it's i think you're right i feel the same way about it yeah there's another dimension of the weird that's open up in this is that also that little moment that isn't like the rest of the track in that paul horn high tide track from visions um just for a moment we get the wordless ooh ah chorus and that is a convention from mid-century exotica and the kind of music that they recorded for movies like king solomon's mines right or cobra woman you know like mgm jungle flicks from the 40s i mean actually think about a much more accessible example the theme from star trek with the theremin I always thought that was a female voice. Is that a is that a theremin? I always thought it was a theremin. I've never looked it up. Oh, let's go to the tape. I'm going to look it up. We can listen to it. And we can decide if this is a theremin or not. Clearly, it's ambiguous. And actually, that's one of the reasons why the theremin is such a great weird instrument. Yeah. Is it kind of sounds like a human voice, but not really. Uh, yeah. It's like for a few seconds there, like, oh, I'm hearing wordless vocalese. And then something will happen, like the way you move or slide from one pitch to another is not how a human voice works. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. So there's always something very rifty about listening to the theremin. But hold on for a second. I want to find this Star Trek theme original. To boldly go where no man has gone before.
All right. So what's your verdict? Theremin or human voice? Well, now that you've uh, put me on the spot, it sounded like a female voice now. Yeah, and I just looked it up and it says, no, it's not a theremin. The original theme was sung by soprano Luli Jean Norman and was not a theremin. Another variation was performed with a violin. That's from the frequently asked questions of theremin world. There. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, listening to it closely, you're right. It sounds. It is definitely a soprano. But it's super ambiguous, right? Yeah. And... In fact, a lot of the same kind of, you know, they didn't call it exotica music in mid-century. They called it mood music most often. You found copious use of both wordless female vocalese and theremin, and often in interchangeable contexts. Contexts where you wanted to suggest something otherworldly, often like in space. I mean, obviously fucking Star Trek, but like... Outer space was suffused with this kind of wordless vocal sound, but also underwater things. Also yeah. just generally exotic places. So if you listen to a lot of Les Baxter, the kingpin of mid-century exotica, actually quite a good composer who listened to a lot of Ravel and Debussy and his very frequent deployment of wordless ooh-ah female choruses probably got the idea from pieces like Sirene by Debussy. He made copious use of this musical style to suggest a kind of generic alterity, a generic otherness. It yeah. could be the otherness of space. It could be the otherness of the deep sea. It could be the otherness of the secret lost tribes of fill in the blank. The whole thing about Exotica is that it's enthusiastically imprecise about actual specific locations in the world. Right. But it's an all-purpose kind of signifier for the exotic and the other, the, the otherworldly. Other, yeah. So it's so cool to me that it reappears in a hip-hop sample in an absolutely perfect perfect context in right. underwater. By the way, all of this stuff, I didn't think up all this stuff myself. There's a music scholar named Rebecca Layden, who last I checked is at um, Oberlin, who has uh, published articles on this stuff, on the transference from French impressionist concert music to mid-century pop exotica of these kind of musical tropes. And one of the graduate students I work with, Meredith Michael, has also been doing some work on this. Uh, but you know, underwater is just, uh, it participates in an actually pretty venerable tradition of representation. Fantastic. Yeah. And th this is one thing that's really interesting from studying pop music is realizing how these songs, which uh, seem to participate in an ethos of ahistoricity, of non-historicity, pop seems to exist in this kind of uh, mercantile commodified environment where things appear out of nowhere and disappear back into nowhere. Whereas if you look at these pop songs closely, often you'll find that they have roots reaching all the way back, whether it's to the decadent literature or to exotica films mm -hmm. from the middle of the 20th century or whatever. And these songs participate, extend and enrich these traditions. So totally. it's like, there's no line that separates high and low art in reality. 
you know. Absolutely. It can exist everywhere. And and here we see a perfect example of that. Now, the question is, how aware uh, was Ghostface Killer of these connotations, these histor- these precedents and stuff when he picked out that beat for his song? Chances are, of who knows, maybe he's on top of it, maybe not. The point is, it doesn't matter for all the reasons we gave in the Jung episodes. It doesn't matter what he intended. That's what he created. And that's what mm. makes him an artist, right? Mm. Um, I mean, that being said, we can also dress this up in a slightly more rationalistic way by saying these things become memes. Who invented the cat cheeseburger meme, the Stone Age meme that <laughs> I remember from the early aughts? I can has cheeseburger. You remember that? Uh, no. Who invented that? Some person actually put together that macro, but the whole universe of cat-based memes is basically authorless. And when you think about cats and funny cat videos and funny cat memes and so on, you're participating in a whole network of signification that is... It doesn't matter who made them. It doesn't matter what the genetic origin is. Once they're out there, they become like genes. They become like these little viruses or little organisms that propagate. And where they propagate is in our minds, in our imaginations. Yeah. And so the association of wordless female vocalese with otherworldliness and yeah. otherworldliness just becomes one of those memes that's just out there floating it comes from a thousand different directions and scholars like Rebecca Layden can decide to drill down and find the actual pieces of music by Ravel and Debussy where these patterns these memes first got started but one way i like to frame this is thinking about a concept of Norman Mailer's the dream life you know, that, I love that line. He talks about the dream life of the nation. The context for that was Mailer doing a kind of interpretation of John F. Kennedy and understanding Kennedy, not in terms of what he said or the content of his message or whatever, but in terms of how his image resonated with things in the dream life. Things in like B-movies, movies whose titles you don't even remember, uh, movies with a certain kind of square jaw hero involved in a certain kind of quest to drive to the frontier or whatever. And Mailer understood quite correctly in advance of Kennedy winning the White House that Kennedy was going to win because Kennedy was already a figure in the dream life. He was already a meme. He was picking up on memes that already existed in a thousand one shitty Hollywood movies. You could probably say the same thing about Trump. Different dream. Yeah. But that's key. But that's what artists do, you know? Like James Joyce wrote Ulysses, which is takes place in the span of one day in Dublin, but it also retells the story of of the Odyssey of Odysseus's travels and all that through the lives of the of this this character, two or three characters. Point being that afterwards, after he'd written Ulysses, he's like, "That was the day world. Now I have to write what's going on under the hood, the night world, and that's Finnegan's Wake." So. Joyce's goal with Finnegan's Wake was to write out the ni- the dream life of the West of yeah. Western civilization. Yeah, and and uh, I have never been able to read Finnegan's Wake, but if we take uh, people like Joseph Campbell or Marshall McLuhan at their word, he did in fact produce essentially a kind of geography of our dream life of what's going on 
behind the scenes of what undergirds history. And that's where the real changes happen, or at least the changes happen there first, which is why McLuhan saw artists as probes who are able to feel these deep cultural shifts before they materialize historically. And um, all this to say that um, to be an artist is to kind of to feel your way through this dream world so that it feels perfectly natural for that vocal to go with this lyric because you're inhabiting the space where these these constellations pre precede you these you're yes. finding these connections and you don't need to understand them to use them Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.